Tom Ricks is a journalist formerly with the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. He has written a lot about war, especially Iraq and Afghanistan. Mr. Ricks is originally from Beverly, Massachusetts, a graduate of Yale, and now lives in Maine. This interview was conducted in January 2021. The focus? His new book, First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and the Romans. Tom Ricks, why did you write the book, First Principles? Well, a lot of books, you don't know quite where they came from. This one, I can tell you precisely how it emerged. Uh, It was the day after the 2016 presidential election. I woke up that gray Wednesday morning in our house in Maine, and I thought, I don't understand what happened last night. How did Donald Trump get elected president of the United States? Who are the people out there that think this was a good idea? And what do they think this country is? And I've been taught in college that if you have a basic problem, go back to fundamental principles. Go back to first principles. And so I walked downstairs and picked up my old college textbook copy of Aristotle's Politics. And we read it in the context of the election of Donald Trump. And one thing that really leapt out at me was Aristotle says somewhere that of the basic forms of government, um, oligarchy is the least stable. And that illuminated Trump for me. Um, Over the course of the years, I remembered another part of politics where Aristotle says, and the worst form of oligarchy, which is, of course, ruled by the rich, the worst form of oligarchy is when the oligarchy makes a political alliance with the mob, which I think is what we saw happen on January 6, 2021, with the invasion of the Capitol by rioters. How interested were you when you were at Yale in Aristotle and others? I wasn't really interested in um, ancient history and philosophy so much. I was an English literature major. I loved Shakespeare, and I loved 20th century American literature. But I've always enjoyed history. The older I get, the more I enjoyed history. And I was reminded just the other day, somebody said, what was your best ever teacher? And I thought it was Doris Breslow who taught me in high school a class I took called The Good Life, and it was what philosophers have said about how to live a good life. And I think that really lit the fuse for me. And it's something I returned to in middle age, going back and reading um, ancient history and philosophy, and it kind of became a hobby for me over the course of about 15 years. I never thought it would lead to a book, but eventually it did, I think, thanks to Donald Trump. What made you think that anybody would want to read, for instance, here's the heading of one of your sections, Cicero and Adams. I didn't think um, it would be that popular a book. I I was genuinely pleased, but also very surprised when the book made the New York Times bestsellers list. I thought this would be an interesting niche book that some people would be interested in, but I didn't think the general public would care for it. And for that, I have to thank my editor, Jonathan Zhao at HarperCollins, who said, I'm going to publish this book the week after the presidential election of 2020. He said, people will be thinking about basic questions, and your book speaks to those. What did, what, what would be the principle, speaking of first principle, 
<clears throat> principles. What would be the principles that you learned about by doing the research and writing this book uh, that you, that surprised you? Uh, well, the first surprise to me was simply that the there was a book to be written about this. I started with um, reading Aristotle, as I said, and that took me on into other philosophy. Increasingly, I realized, though, that the American founders, who I was also interested in, were much more influenced by Rome than by Greece. And that was a surprise to me. I had actually, my original sort of working title for the book was, it just said Greece book. Uh, And I realized about two months into this that, no, Greece is kind of in the background. Um, Yes, Thomas Jefferson was into the Greeks, but basically the other founders the revolutionary generation, were not that interested in Greece. They really were focused on Rome, and especially on the decline of the Roman Republic. They got their political vocabulary from Rome, uh, and they thought the Roman Republic was the thing they really wanted to emulate. Because when they start designing this country and thinking about revolution and where it leads them, they didn't have a lot of examples out there. Most nations had been monarchies, ruled by kings or queens. And uh, there were very few successful republics out there, and one of them was the Roman Republic. So they tended to focus on that. And remember, there in a time when there weren't sports heroes, movie stars, other sort of culture heroes. Really, the role models that they had tended to come from ancient Rome. And so, for example, when George Washington, growing up, he's basically an orphan. He's looking for a model of who he wants to be. And he really sees us on Cato, uh, ancient Roman statesman. Uh, Washington is not well-educated, but he knows about Cato from a play called Cato that was one of the most popular dramas of the 18th century. And he, he models himself on Cato, which is interesting because I think also the qualities of Cato he takes upon himself as a general and then takes to the presidency. And what we began to think of the norms of how a president should act in office, I think to a surprising degree, come from this ancient Roman statesman, Cato. Uh, He's frugal, he's prudent, he's reserved, and he's kind of above politics. Uh, He's he's not a loudmouth. He's he's sort of quietly spoken. Uh, As you mentioned, Adams uh, models himself on Cicero, another Roman politician, much uh, more eloquent um, than Cato, uh, a real public speaker. And to a surprising degree, Adams, who comes from a fairly modest and obscure background, makes himself the American Cicero and rises to the presidency through emulating Cicero. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, as I said, is less of a Roman than the others, a a bit more focused on Greece. The others are Stoics. They want to be stoical, um, either in Washington especially, succeeds. Jefferson is more focused on Epicurus. He declares himself an Epicurean. Epicurus is the Greek philosopher who said that the purpose of life is to avoid pain and to pursue happiness. And this is not just important for Jefferson's own life, but for the documents he leaves behind. If you look at the Declaration of Independence through that Epicurean prism, you see he mentions happiness twice in the opening paragraphs of the Declaration. And really, the Declaration is a very Epicurean document. Uh, this thing about avoiding pain, pursuing happiness, uh, also does kind of shape, I think, Jefferson's approach to life. Uh, I think it's one reason who, throughout his life, pursued married women, 
because it had the prospect of romantic pleasure without the risk of long-term entanglements. Uh, and then Madison comes along, and Madison is interesting because he's a, kind of a generation after the others, and he takes a much more academic approach to the ancient world. He sits down and studies ancient Greek and Roman republics for several years to prepare for what he thinks that there eventually will be, and he's right, a constitutional convention where they rewrite the fundamental law of the nation. And Madison comes to Philadelphia for the constitutional convention, the best prepared, having gone through all these documents, and uses his knowledge of the ancient world to shape the American Constitution. You're well known for your successful books on Iraq and David Betrayus and... uh... Uh, those books when you were with the Washington Post and and after, um, then you did the Churchill and Orwell is the last time we talked. Uh, This is a a great departure from all of that. Tell us, if we had followed you around from the beginning of this project, where would you have gone? You would have found me in the basement of the Bowdoin College Library, um, sitting literally sometimes just sitting on the floor because it was easier to check a book and then carrying them back and forth to my desk. I'd sit there on the floor looking at American history books, and then I'd go over to the classic section and look at that, um, and then I'd be online. Uh, the two great surprises to me in doing the research for this book, uh, number one, was that almost everything published in America in the 18th century is now online uh, and searchable. Books, pamphlets, letters, it's all there. And so I could see a reference to a document, and I'd just call it up and look at it. Uh, Some of these are proprietary databases that I got access to through my uh, affiliation with Bowdoin College. But a lot of it is just out there. You could, if somebody mentions a book, you can go and look for it. As a matter of fact, uh, John Adams mentions one book, and I said, boy, that's obscure. I'll I'll go find that. And so I got it online, and I was looking at it, and I was writing down some stuff. And when I finished, I said, well, I need to get the copyright information for the footnotes. And I looked in the front of the book. And the copy of the book I've been using had belonged to John Adams. It was signed by him, and it was the copy was actually in a library in Boston that that had been digitized, so people could use it for research. The other great surprise to me, and the great joy, was a website called Founders Online, done by the National Archives in association with the University of Virginia. And for, for five decades, we've had people telling us the U.S. government isn't good at doing anything. I've got to tell you, Founders Online is a wonderful website. Every word that the revolutionary generation wrote, Washington, uh, Hamilton, Jefferson, it's all there, and it's searchable. And so I could check things that academics kind of never had a chance to, to, to look at in the past. For example, um, we were all taught in high school that John Locke, was the most influential philosopher in the shaping of the Constitution. Well, I said, let's check that, because I'm seeing a lot of references to Montesquieu, the French Enlightenment philosopher. Instantly, it'll show you that the founding generation referred to Montesquieu twice as much as they referred to John Locke. Uh, You could compare what people said about things. You could compare the words they used. And I've got to say, the third great surprise to me in my research as I went through all this was the recognition that our vision of the ancient world, of ancient Greece and Rome, is very different from the Greece and Rome that the founders had. They just looked at things differently. They thought different things were important. For example, almost no one except Jefferson read the great Greek dramatist. 
they were not seen as essential parts of world literature. In fact, the most popular uh, ancient dramatist for the revolutionary generation was a Roman comic playwright named Terence. Nobody reads them these days. I tried as part of my research and found it pretty unreadable. Uh, As I said, they thought Rome was much more important than Greece. And even when they looked at Greece, they thought Sparta was a better model than Athens. Today, we tend to think of Athens as the high point of early Western civilization. This is Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and the great dramatist. Uh, in the revolutionary generation, looked at Athens as kind of flighty, um, turbulent, a little bit dangerous. One ancient historian described Athens as a ship without a captain and a little bit too democratic. And that kind of scared Uh, the revolutionary generation, especially the more conservatives among them, like Washington and Adams. Where is Bowdoin College, and why were you there? Bowdoin College is in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, If you've ever seen a movie about a college in New England, that's what Bowdoin College looks like, Uh, especially in the fall, this lovely quadrangle with brick buildings around it and the autumn leaves falling and blowing across the quadrangle. And then, of course... In, in you know December, the first blizzard hits, and you realize, no, you're actually in the tundra for the next few months. Uh, Bowden very nicely took me on board as a uh, visiting fellow in history and basically gave me access to their librarian, librarian researchers that showed me these interesting new databases they had, like um, there was one called Early American Papers, which had other like newspapers and stuff that I found helpful to use. And I also um, went and talked to professors occasionally. I don't understand what, what the Scottish philosopher David Hume is saying here, so I'd go find a philosophy professor who taught Hume, and I'd ask him about that. Um, one interesting moment for me was I went and talked to a woman, who's an, uh, Megan Roberts, who's an expert in the French Enlightenment, and she was very helpful in distinguishing for me between the French Enlightenment the English Enlightenment, and the Scottish Enlightenment. That actually led to several months of my reading looking at the Scottish Enlightenment, um, which I came to believe is much more important than anything that happened in England during that time in shaping our country. It's for two reasons. Basically, the Scots invent the modern world. They invent the Industrial Revolution with the steam engine and James Watt in Glasgow. Uh, They also invent new fields of, of study, sociology, demography, modern historiography, and even modern economics with Adam Smith's um, work on on how how an economy works. Uh, I was also fascinated they invented geology, which required a a leap of the imagination to conceive that the world was not 6,000 years old, as the Christian church, church had taught, but actually was millions and billions of years old. And that's the beginning of a Scotsman named James Hutton inventing modern geology. And this is also interesting because... Scots had access to America through the tobacco trade. They could get there easily. And a lot of poor Scottish kids graduating from the universities in Glasgow and Edinburgh came to America, and especially to tobacco country, and became tutors. So, for example, two of the most influential people in young Thomas Jefferson's life were Scottish teachers, uh, one at William and Mary. Uh, James Madison was very influenced by a Scotsman who taught him before he went off to Princeton where he was taught by another Scotsman, James Weatherspoon, the president of Princeton. Um, you know, <clears throat> you wrote lots about war. You wrote 
about uh, Churchill and Orwell as we talked, and you've done a novel. But go back to December or uh, November when this book came out and it hit the New York Times bestseller list. What got it there? I mean, you're talking about the Iliad and Plutarch's Tark's life and Xenophon and Epicurus. You can go down the list, and that's not normally what makes it to the New York Times bestseller list. I think, again, this is to the credit of my editor, Jonathan Zhao, who said uh, we will be in a kind of existential crisis as a nation. Who are we? What are we about? What are we intended to be? He said people are going to be really interested in the basic questions about this country, but they don't want to read about it in a partisan fashion. They don't want to just read Trump's bad, somebody else's good. They want good, hard facts about the fundamentals of this country. And so, for example, he said to me, please do not mention Donald Trump after page one when you say this is what provoked you to start this research. Do not mention him in the rest of the book until the epilogue. Keep him out. Make it a Trump-free zone for the next 220 pages. And so I did. And I just kind of tried to focus on who are we, what are, what are we supposed to be, and where are we going? And in the back of my mind constantly was, what would the founders think if they could see us today? Uh, it's shocking, for example, to me that they wove slavery into the fundamental law of the land. They put slavery into the Constitution. As a friend of mine said, slavery is not a stain on the American fabric. It is part of the American fabric. And we are still pulling out those strands of fundamental racism that was part of the design of this country. At the same time, when you read these guys' words and how they interpreted history and philosophy, I think they would look at us and say two things. Number one, we designed the Constitution to be amended. That's why they're called amendments, improvements, to change it and better it to adjust to a changing country. Why haven't you people made more changes to it? In fact, for the first hundred years in America, there were many changes to the Constitution. But in the last hundred years, there have not been any real significant changes, probably since women uh, were given the vote. Uh, and that was you know, a century ago. Uh, at least white women were given the vote. Black women, like black, pe black people generally, didn't really get the vote in parts of this country until our lifetimes, the late 1960s. I think the second thing the founders would look at is, I think they'd be shocked by our campaign finance system, the way corporations and, and big donations dominate our electoral politics. This, for them, would be the essence of what they thought of as corruption. And that's important because they were taught that the two things that brought down the Roman Republic were factionalism and corruption. And they would look at our system today and said, you people are losing your hold on democracy, the country we designed, and you are drifting towards oligarchy. And that's bad not just because we didn't want this to be an oligarchy, but second, because oligarchies are unstable, especially oligarchies allied with the mob. And you people are leading the country to a dangerous position when you allow that to happen. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times my previous books about war. Um, I think the answer to that question is, Every book I have written has war at its heart, uh, and I think that is true of the Churchill and Orwell book. Churchill and Orwell, uh, Orwell is shaped by the Spanish Civil War, and then Churchill, of course, is key to how World War II plays out. And then in this book, uh, the American Revolution is the central event of the book. And in fact, I think, at least for academics, the 
most significant part of the book is my treatment of George Washington as a general, partly because I thought the more I read the academic history, uh, the more I thought they got George Washington wrong. They tend to mock him as a general, saying he never won a battle. Uh, The problem with that is the outcomes of wars are not always decided by battles. Battles are fought infrequently, but armies exist every day, uh, and armies have to eat every day. So the most significant aspects of the American Revolution are not battles. They're what Washington does with his army between battles. And it's to Washington's great credit that he really changed as a commander during the war. He goes into the Revolution, a fairly conventional officer, thinking a lot like his British counterparts think, that taking the offense is good, fighting set-piece battles where you go into battle against the other guy, that's the way to go. He learns, number one, uh, that if he pursues that, he's going to lose the war. And by late 1776, he thinks he might be losing, might, might actually have lost the war. And he begins to change. And it, there's an interim step where he says, I'm going to fight a war of defense where I'll sit in a fortress and they'll attack me. That doesn't work either. He gets his butt kicked out of Long Island. He gets chased across Manhattan and then chased across New Jersey by the British Army. In the course of this, though, he begins to think about a third way to fight, and this, oddly enough, takes us back to Roman history. He adopts what is called a Fabian strategy, which is named for the Roman general Fabius, who defeated Hannibal, the Carthaginian invader of Italy, by refusing to fight him, by um, basically hanging on the flanks of Hannibal, chewing away at his supply lines and exhausting him without giving him the big battle wanted. And that's the way that Washington begins to fight. Uh, It's not natural for him. He's naturally actually a very aggressive commander. But for several years, he pursues this Fabian strategy. Then finally, after the French enter the war with ships and men and money, at Yorktown, he is able to throw off the Fabian strategy, which he never particularly liked, even though he was pretty good at it. And he adopts a very conventional approach. He and the French uh, win the battle at Yorktown, the British surrender. It takes a couple more years for the surrender, for the treaty to be drawn up. But that basically is the end of the American Revolution. And it's, we won it, I think, because Washington adapted. So I think that's a great story of generalship. To me, that also is the beating heart of the book. The fact that the least educated of these guys also is the most adaptive. Uh, there's a saying among American historians that the more you know about George Washington, the more you admire him. And I think that was true for me. Oddly enough, the other person it was true uh, for was James Madison. The more I learned about little Jemmy Madison, as they called him, the more I liked the guy and admired him. At the beginning of the book, you have a chronology. Um, It's interesting for this reason for me. It was 1732, birth of George Washington. Three years later, John Adams. Eleven years after George Washington's birth, Thomas Jefferson. And 19 years after George Washington, James Madison. And you talk a lot about those presidents. But I want to ask you a little bit off topic about a man you also talk about, Alexander Hamilton. But here's the question. People loved the Hamilton Broadway musical. Lots of people paid lots of money to go see it. But in the middle of all that, I'm not sure how many people noticed that it became a political tool. And that during the Obama time, they used that musical to raise money for him. During the Hillary Clinton time, they used the musical to raise money for her. Uh, 
during the Joe Biden election, they used uh, that play to raise money for him. My question to you is, Ron Chernow wrote the book. Uh, and and the, when the musical was put together, did the people that put it together have a reason, a political reason, why they wanted to focus on Hamilton, who was, as you know, raised to the public consciousness far beyond anything or any time in his his uh, history? I think they did. I mean, uh, I, I'm interpreting here, but Lin-Manuel Miranda, the, um, the author of the play and the star of the play, uh, I think saw something in Hamilton's life that resonated with his own life. Uh, Miranda is also from an island in the Caribbean, like Hamilton. He's an immigrant. He comes to New York, like Hamilton. He's a talented guy, like Hamilton, and he makes his way to the top, like Hamilton does, through his sheer talent and energy. This is kind of, uh, Hamilton is a fascinating figure to me. I think he's much overvalued these days, uh, as I think John Adams is also. But uh, Hamilton has such talent and energy. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the book is uh, when John Adams is vice president. He's having drinks one night with uh, Thomas Pickering, who is the, um, later the postmaster general, and they're arguing about whether George Washington is illiterate. And Adams says, no, he's not. Uh, when I was in the Congress uh, in the war, I got some very good letters from General Washington. And Pickering says, oh, come on, those were all written by that kid, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and you're right, Hamilton's letters, those especially he wrote for, for Washington, really leap off the page. There's an energy in his prose and a sharpness of observation uh, and intelligence. He, he is a better analyst of the war than most of the people about him, even though he's in his young 20s when he is an aide to General Washington. And Hamilton is also a fascinating great tragedy. Here's this guy who comes to this country with nothing. He's an orphan. Through his own talent and strength of will, becomes incredibly important in shaping the country. He effectively serves as George Washington's prime minister. Uh, and then, within 10 years, he feels, he writes, tells a friend, there is no place for me in this country. Uh, uh, by the time Thomas Jefferson is president, Hamilton just feels totally on the outs and doesn't like where the country is going. What, what the play leaves out is that Hamilton, in many ways, was also batshit crazy. Uh, he didn't understand a lot of this country. Uh, he, for example, goes to the Constitutional Convention, gives this long speech in which he basically proposes two things, that the presidency should be for life, like a monarchy, and that the Senate should also be for life, like a House of Lords. And they don't listen to him, and he leaves. Uh, it really shows that even from a fairly early point, Hamilton was simply thinking and going in a different direction than where this country was going. And if there's one thing I would fault the, the musical on is it doesn't capture that. Uh, still, said I really enjoyed Hamilton, but I wouldn't rely on it for my history. You write in your book that John Adams would write of Hamilton that he possessed, one, all the vanity and timidity of Cicero, two, all the debauchery of Mark Anthony, and three, all the ambition of Julius Caesar. I know that's a lot, but can you break any of that down so we can better understand uh, the value of those uh, characters that lived way beyond before John Adams? And remember that each of these characters loom large. Uh, this is like 
comparing uh, someone today, you know, to, I don't know, name your celebrities, uh, saying somebody is a combination of Oprah, Michael Jordan, and Donald Trump. You know, these are all sort of huge figures for them. So Cicero, uh, the Roman politician, is known for being quite eloquent, but also extraordinarily vain. Uh, Anthony Trollope uh, wrote about Cicero. He loved to talk about his country, and he loved to talk about himself. And unfortunately, he did both about equally. Um, who was the second person? Mark, Mark Anthony. Debauchery of Mark, Mark Anthony. Anthony. Mark Anthony, a uh, great soldier, ally of, um, of Caesar, but also had a reputation for being quite debauched, uh, sexually promiscuous, uh, and winds up uh, in in Rome, I mean, I'm sorry, winds up in Egypt with Cleopatra in a kind of early decline. And the third uh, so was the kind of doomed. ambition of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is a, so one of those people who was seen so differently today than, uh, than it was seen by the revolutionary generation. Uh, we tend to see Caesar uh, as a great leader, a great general, uh, someone who took over Rome and you know, led it to glory. The revolutionary generation saw Julius Caesar as exactly what they didn't want. What you uh, you don't want a general taking over. That's one reason they were so grateful to, to Washington for not asserting that I won the war and so I'm going to lead the country. Uh, and, you know, for resigning his commission and going back to his farm. Uh, Julius Caesar to them was a danger to be avoided. They had the more recent example of Cromwell and the English Civil War getting rid of the king, declaring a republic, and then basically becoming a dictator. These were the things that worried them. Uh, and so Caesar was a dangerous thing, somebody to be avoided. And you know, so that's a real condemnation to, to say that somebody is a Julius Caesar. I want to go back to the Hamilton Broadway play, and this may be overdoing this a little bit, but I find it interesting. So many people flock to the theater, and now they can watch it on Disney+. Plus. It started out as, you know, a tremendous amount of focus on a guy named Alexander Hamilton. Uh, what would he be if he were here today? What would he be? What party would he belong to? And what would it be his overall philosophy of government? That's a good question, and I don't know. And I think the answer may be that he really didn't see a place for himself, and he was correct in that, that um, – he was much more of an Englishman than the others. Uh, the interesting thing is there's an alliance between Madison and Hamilton right after the convention, where together they lead the campaign to ratify the Constitution, because it, it wasn't just something that had to be drawn up. It had to be approved by meetings in each of the states. And so Madison and Jefferson work very well together. They write the Federalist Papers, these essays that lead the campaign to ratify the Constitution. And then they diverge really quickly in the following years. And within about 10 or 11 years, they are really mortal enemies. Madison and Jefferson invent the first edition of American politics. They invent the opposition in the 1790s. And this drives people like Hamilton and Adams crazy. Uh, Adams uh, is a disaster as president, in part because he thinks nobody should criticize him. He thinks it should be illegal to criticize him. And in fact, newspaper editors are put in jail simply for criticizing the president. Uh, Hamilton watches all this, uh, 
he is though winds up in this very paradoxical position in the election of 1800. He totally disagrees with Jefferson and Madison on policy issues, but he hates uh, Aaron Burr, and he thinks Aaron Burr. He compares him to a Catiline, the worst thing you can call somebody, a Roman conspirator. Uh, he calls him a Catiline, and eventually throws his support to Jefferson, which he finds bitterly ironic that he winds up supporting Jefferson to become president. I'm going to say one thing, as long as we're talking about the election of 1800, it's been on my mind a lot lately, because it is so similar to the events we've been through recently. Uh, It's the first time that an opposition uh, party is elected president in this country. Jefferson is elected president. Adams is very bitter about this. He becomes our first one-term president. And he's very sensitive about being turned out by the American people. In fact, Adams does not attend the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson. He leaves Washington, D.C. on the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore. He's very upset and bitter about it, uh, but he doesn't try to undermine this election. And Jefferson takes office, and his first inaugural address says two things that resonate with me today. The first thing he says is, look, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. So he's saying just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean they're a bad person. The second thing he says is, I'm not going to put the opposition in jail like, Tom, like John Adams did. Uh, he said, we're going to have a free marketplace of ideas. People will be allowed to say what they want. And if they're wrong, the American people will recognize that. So I'm confident that we can have this open discussion and not jail the opposition. Uh, This really is the beginning of modern American politics, this transfer of power to the opposition, and Jefferson saying we will respect the people who just lost. They're not going to be put in jail. One more um, couple of questions. Um, Thomas Paine, you say in your book that he was probably the most unfairly neglected uh, person of all the founders. Explain. Thomas Paine is an interesting figure because he doesn't want to wield power. All these other guys are studying philosophy and politics and structures because they expect to take office. Thomas Paine is a public intellectual. He's a commentator and a critic. He has no interest in actually taking power. And so he's coming from a different perspective. And his book, Common Sense, is hugely influential in how Americans think about the revolution. And I also think quite influential in how Thomas Jefferson approaches drafting the Declaration of Independence. Uh, What's striking to me is the Declaration is not how Jefferson usually writes. He is a much more Latinate, flowery writer. But in common sense, but in the Declaration, Jefferson, I think, imitates Thomas Paine's style. He writes in a style so in which he expects the common man, the person on the street corner, to read and understand what he's saying. He's writing the Declaration so people can read it aloud in, in coffee houses and, and bars and understand it when it's read aloud to them. Uh, so he uses, I think, a much more democratic, straightforward prose style, and I think he's imitating Paine in that. Uh, but Paine sort of just goes off and disappears. He, he pursues the French Revolution. He gets in trouble there. Uh, it's just a different course of life that he follows, but uh, I think should be given a bit more credit and attention uh, than he has been given. 
First Principles is the name of the book. The subtitle is What's America, America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and the Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. And our guest has been Thomas Ricks, and we really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.